Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican's podcast. I'm Chris Gunnis. This is The Art of Change a series featuring artists who are passionate about changing the world. Today, Stephen Fry, writer, actor, comedian and campaigner on many issues, including mental health, about which he's been paint stripper honest, discussing publicly his own manic depression and suicide attempts. Our starting point is Beethoven's suicidal cry for help, the Heiligenstadt Testament, written to his brothers in 1802 as he struggled with his deafness and isolation. For my brothers Karl and Johann Beethoven. O oh, you men, who think or say that I am malevolent, stubborn, or misanthropic, how greatly do you wrong me! You do not know the secret causes of my seeming. From childhood my heart and mind were disposed to the gentle feelings of good will. I was even ever eager to accomplish great deeds. But reflect now that for six years I have been a hopeless case, aggravated by senseless physicians, cheated year after year in the hope of improvement, finally compelled to face the prospect of a lasting malady whose cure will take years or perhaps be impossible. Born with an ardent and lively temperament, even susceptible to the diversions of society, I was compelled early to isolate myself, to live in loneliness. When I at times tried to forget all this, oh, how harshly I was repulsed by the doubly sad experience of my bad hearing. And yet it was impossible for me to say to men, Speak louder! Shout! For I am deaf. How could I possibly admit such an infirmity in the one sense which should have been more perfect in me than in others, a sense which I once possessed in highest perfection, a perfection such as few surely in my profession enjoy or have enjoyed? I cannot do it. Therefore, forgive me when you see me draw back, when I would gladly mingle with you. My misfortune is doubly painful because it must lead to my being misunderstood. For me there can be no 
recreations in society of my fellows, refined intercourse, mutual exchange of thought, only just as little as the greatest needs command may I mix with society. I must live like an exile. If I approach near to people, a hot terror seizes upon me, a fear that I may be subjected to the danger of letting my condition be observed. Thus it has been during the last half-year which I spent in the country, commanded by my intelligent physician to spare my hearing as much as possible, in this almost meeting my present natural disposition, although I sometimes ran counter to it, yielding to my inclination for society. But what a humiliation when one stood beside me and heard a flute in the distance, and I heard nothing! or someone heard the shepherd singing, and again I heard nothing. Such incidents brought me to the verge of despair. But little more, and I would have put an end to my life. Only art it was that withheld me. It seemed impossible to leave the world until I had produced all that I felt called upon me to produce, and so I endured this wretched existence, truly wretched, an excitable body where the sudden change can throw from the best into the worst state. Patience, it is said that I must now choose for my guide. I have done so. I hope my determination will remain firm to endure until it please the inexorable Parkai to break the thread. Perhaps I shall get better. Perhaps not. I am prepared, forced already in my twenty-eighth year to become a philosopher. Ah, oh, it's not easy. Less easy for the artist than for anyone else. Divine one, thou lookest into my inmost soul. Thou knowest it. Thou knowest that love of man and desire to do good live therein. O oh, men, when some day you read these words, reflect that you did me wrong, and let the unfortunate one comfort himself and find one of his kind, who, despite all obstacles of nature, yet did all that was in his power to be accepted among worthy artists and men. You, my brothers Karl and Johann, as soon as I am dead, if Dr. Schmidt is still alive, ask him in my name to describe my malady, and attach this document to the history of my illness, so that, so far as possible at least, the world may become reconciled with me after my death. At the same time, I declare you two to be the heirs to my small fortune, <laughs> if so it can be called. Divide it fairly, bear with and help each other. What injury you have done me, you know, was long ago forgiven. To you, Brother Karl, I give special thanks for the attachment you have displayed towards me of late. It is my wish that your lives be better and freer from care than I have had. Recommend virtue to your children. It alone can give happiness, not money. I speak from experience. It was virtue that upheld me in misery. To it, next to my art, I owe the fact that I did not end my life with suicide. Farewell and love each other. I thank all my friends, 
particularly Prince Lichnowsky and Professor Schmidt. I desire that the instruments from Prince L be preserved by one of you, but let no quarrel result from this. So soon as they can serve you better purpose, sell them. How glad will I be if I can still be helpful to you in my grave. With joy I hasten towards death. And if it comes before I shall have had an opportunity to show all my artistic capacities, it will still come too early for me, despite my hard fate, and I shall probably wish it had come later. But even then I am satisfied. Will it not free me? from my state of endless suffering. Come when thou will, I shall meet thee bravely. Farewell, and do not wholly forget me when I am dead. I deserve this of you, in having often in life thought of you how to make you happy. Be so. Ludwig van Beethoven, Heiligenstadt, October the 6th, 1802. Stephen Fry, thanks for that. Um, let me ask you first of all, what does the Heiligenstadt Testament mean to you when you think about Beethoven? Well, it makes me think of our stereotype, our common image of the artist being turned on its head in a strange sort of way because we love this idea of Beethoven, the, the busts and the portraits of him with his hair and his moody eyes and this kind of tempestuous temper that we think of, you know, we imagine him walking down the street with a cane and barking at children and <laughs> somehow being a kind of in his head with thunderstorms when he dies and all this kind of thing. And, and we realise he was... As the music tells us, of course, that he was so human, so desperately needing to love and be loved, as all of us are. It's the only thing we have in common, really. Everything else is peripheral and a detail, but our need to love and be loved. And that's what music does for us. And that's what Beethoven, primus inter pares, <laughs> first among equals, it's, it's what he does perhaps more and more powerfully than any composer that, that I know. And, and this testament shows the misery and the pain of his isolation due to his deafness, the huge and monstrous irony of being given such a gift that only Mozart before him had had. I mean, from the age of 10, 11, well, in fact, younger, I think he was eight when he, or seven even, when he first gave concerts, his father whipped him into doing. Um, he was a true prodigy, and he'd been given... Uh, such remarkable attributes in music as a composer and a pianist and uh, everyone around him, you know, thought he was as, uh, the equal of Mozart, really. And um, then to have that taken away, <laughs> not taken away, but to have it compromised by the loss of hearing. I mean, had he, had he lost his sight, it would have been, you know, a, a blow, but nothing like as as much, clearly. I mean, the images we all have, I, I expect people know the story of him conducting the ninth symphony, mm. one of his last great, great works, the Choral Symphony, and had to be turned round from the podium the to see the audience. Yeah, man, I mean, that's heartbreaking. And of all, you know, he straddled the centuries, the 18th and 19th centuries, and he straddled classicism, so-called, and romanticism. Uh, he was a child of reason and uh, the and the enlightenment and he believed in the human spirit he was famously he had note truck with aristocrats and uh, he was just that bit later than Haydn who taught him mm. and Mozart who who had had to bow and kowtow to emperors and so on and he he did a bit but mostly he 
happily bit the hand that fed him, which is what artists do and have done ever since. Do you think it's fair to say that our idea of the romantic artist actually goes back to Beethoven himself? Think, and indeed this note, the Heiligenstadt yeah. Testament? I think in music, it's Beethoven and, and then Schubert, who, who had a similarly kind of miserable, if you like, life, but was also such a profound human uh, uh, spirit and such an amiable soul, uh, much more amiable perhaps than Ludwig, who might have barked at us had we met him. Uh, and Van Gogh is another, I suppose, we think of. And what are the attributes of that romantic artist? Well, it's that you write music for yourself, not for your patron, not for a Medici, not for a prince, although he did write for princes and, and princes of the highest blood possible, Prince, you know, uh, Rudolf, uh, um, uh, the Archduke, uh, and, and, uh, and Prince Lichnowsky, whom he mentions in the, in the Testament, uh, uh, because they, they were the equivalent of what would now be, you know, being commissioned by Facebook, I suppose, or something <laughs> equally horrifying. You know, artists have to have money, they have to, uh, they have to eat, and they have to have enough to be able to work on their next piece, and in those days there was no other option. It was either the church uh, or it was uh, the aristocracy. It was before business. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Established itself as, as providing millionaires and sponsors and patrons. So most of them wrote whatever they were asked to write. And he did... But particularly as he moved on, and perhaps as a result of the deafness and as a result of his anger at fate, if you like, he seemed to create works of music that somehow were for the individual listener, uh, and they told stories about the human spirit and about human love and passion and even politics in, in a way that music hadn't before. I mean, there were hints in late Mozart, you know, the D minor piano concerto and things like that, which were greatly influential on Beethoven, suggested something of personal passion, personal frustration, personal um, agony mm. to, to be present in music. But this was a new idea. Rembrandt earlier had, had 
been perhaps the first painter to paint mm. for himself rather mm. than for the, the you know the, the commercial masters of Amsterdam and so on. So that that's one of the things we think of as romantic is this idea that the artist lives for their art, their independent souls. Yes. But absolutely. what about the suffering and the isolation? To what extent is that a component part of this notion of the romantic artist? <laughs> it's part of the notion of it. No romantic artist <laughs> would want it to be a necessary not. condition of their practice. Um, but yes, there is. I mean, the, famously in, in one of the late quartets, there's that he wrote above it, uh, the, the German for must it be, it must be, muss es sein, es muss sein. It's this, do we have to live under the terrible conditions of fate and society and being misunderstood and not achieving love, not being able to express ourselves socially. Music frees us from the fact that language is to do with class and gender and education and upbringing and nationality. Language is naturally, you know, sort of ghettoized into the compartments from which it springs, the discourses, whereas music is an open language mm. that allows... So it always sounds pretentious to people who haven't quite you know, been let into so-called classical music, that when one talks about it telling stories or suggesting conflicts and so on, because, you know, that's a matter of interpretation. And it's uh, how can you think that? But um, one of my favourite lines in any film is uh, a a River Phoenix film, a Sidney Lumet film called Running on Empty. And and River Phoenix plays this boy who's a a piano virtuoso, but he's on the run with it. Well, at least his parents are on the run because they committed a crime. There were kind of hippies who were against the Vietnam War and they accidentally killed a security guard in a napalm factory that they sabotaged or something like that. (laughs) Anyway, so they're on the run, constantly having to change identities. And he's, meanwhile, just got a keyboard. Uh, in which he practices on the piano. And he arrives at this school and he's led into a music class that happens to be the class that's going on as he's registering under a new name. And the the music teacher is playing two pieces of music to the class. Uh, to the class. One is a Madonna track and then there's a piece of Beethoven. Uh, he doesn't say it's Beethoven, it's just a piece of classical music. And he says to the class, what's the difference between the two? Um, one of the sort of greasy kids says, um, one's good and one's not good. And the music teacher says, well, it's a matter of opinion, surely. Anybody else? And River looks up and says, you can't dance to Beethoven. Mm. Which is very <laughs> profound. Now, music, as we know, is rooted in dance. Mm. And the Seventh Symphony Absolutely. famously is called the apotheosis of the dance. And there are gigs and partitas and all these dance terms. But the time signatures change. There isn't a backbeat. It isn't for dancing, it's for listening to. Mm. The same thing happened in the 20th century with jazz. Mm. It stopped being, after the swing came bebop and, and, and then later iterations of, of jazz, suddenly it became music you had to listen to. Mm. You put your head into the music and you follow a line. You follow a rhythm, uh, uh, not a, well, a rhythm, but, but I mean a rhythm of, of subjects, of questions and answers, a tennis match, particularly. The fir- you know, I sometimes when people say, not that I'm can have any answers. I'm certainly not musical enough to, but they say, how do I listen to a piece? I'll say, well, take a piece like the Emperor Concerto, one, mm. of, one of Beethoven's absolute masterpieces. Uh, he was too deaf at the time to be able to play it, I think, or at least he didn't trust himself to, and I think it was Count Czerny, one of his great mm. pupils, who, who played it. And um, I said, well, imagine, it's not the only way to listen to a concerto, but just imagine that the instrument, the single instrument, is a human Oh. and that the orchestra is either fate or society. 
and that they have a relationship with each other. What a a wonderful way to look at that concerto. Mm. Yes, and and if you do that, you think, goodness, yes, he's the piano saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) And society's saying, join us, join us. And with with Beethoven, wonderfully, usually, he does join in. Mm. There is a kind of acceptance Acceptance of the the noise of fate or the noise of society and the individual voice that you've been hearing in pain joins in. Mm. Now, some people say that's a ridiculously simplistic way to listen, and of, of course. But there again, <laughs> I think it was Bernard Shaw, who was a great music critic, of course. <laughs> he said, I shall now, uh, <laughs> now analyse one of the most famous speeches in Shakespeare, the way that most music critics analyse music. <laughs> the soliloquy begins with an expression of the verb of existence in its indicative and infinitive <laughs> form, to be. The subject is then followed by a conjunction of alternative or, which is then offers the negation of the original subject, not to be. I said, what kind of arse would do that to, to Shakespeare? But why do they do it to music? Oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, that's a, I just sort of hold by that. But of course, you know, uh, it's not what is known as program music. He, yeah. he wasn't inviting us to, unless it's Wellington's Victory or one of the mm. more obvious pieces mm. that you could say is program music. But, but but uh, it, it, nonetheless, it's very hard not to feel that. And, and it's true in the symphonies, too, in the Ninth Symphony, but because he works it to a famous poem of Schiller's, The Ode to, to Joy, and, and this cry of all men must be brothers is yeah. still the most powerful cry that you can have. Yes. And it, music, of course, can do coming together and going apart better than a drama, better than a painting, mm. because a painting can't suddenly disintegrate mm. into its primary elements and then come back again but music can do that because it exists through time I want to come back to this idea which I know attracts you of this idea of Mm. Beethoven as a humanitarian but before we leave Mm. the Heiligenstadt Testament I want to ask you about this idea of genius the Mm. idea that you've got to suffer be isolated and of course we touch here on the notions of mental illness I mean is genius intrinsically part of Mm. mental illness and vice versa well, it's a, it's an interesting question, and with musicians, there are many examples of those who clearly were afflicted with with mental illness. Robert Schumann is perhaps the most extreme, um, which so clear to see the bipolar. But there's also a reference in the Heiligenstadt Testament where Beethoven talks about the you know the highs and the lows, mm. um, which may be for some indicative of that. But the uh, the isolation, um, the that the constant sense of darkness inside him must have made him a terrible companion. We know it did. He drove his beloved nephew Carl almost to suicide because of his uh, his over anxiousness and so on. And um, is it a necessary ingredient of genius? It's so hard to say because, in order to produce the kinds of thing that Beethoven did, under the conditions he lived in. Uh, from being an abused child, a beaten child, uh, all all the way through this very early in his life, this this illness, this uh, this hearing loss, um, c- created uh, conditions that you can't say you can't say for certain. How could one have the confidence to say that without those he would have written just as good music? It's hard not to feel that his suffering is in his work and mm. that we experience it and that his 
boldness and so on are part of that genius. But for all we can tell about Shakespeare, for example, uh, and that he uh, had a comparable genius, but there's no real evidence that he was anything other than a rather larky fellow who liked <laughs> pubs and uh, worked very hard, yeah. clearly. Uh, he had the terrible tragedy of the loss of his uh, son, Hamlet, of course, and so you know, his life wasn't easy. No one's life ever was or, or is. Um, but um, I think... Sherlock Holmes was fond of uh, quoting whoever it was who said that genius is an, an infinite capacity for taking pains. Yes. I think if 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 there is something particular about the geniuses, they simply care more. Yeah. They really care. And he cared for his art. He called it his art. There's no arrogance in that. He did know how good he was. Yeah. I've seen you quotes do, there's a line of Auden, throw out my devils and you throw out my angels also, yes. my demons, whatever That's it is. That's right. And it's hard... It's hard to have confidence that without this clash inside you, without this darkness, this constant sense of being on the edge, uh, edge of reason sometimes, uh, that, that that is helpful. In, mm. Because there's the, te- there's the technique and te- you know, the understanding of music and, and so on, which is a miracle that mm. any human can have this, the understanding of the theory of music and the ability to play the piano or the, whatever instruments it is with, uh, at sight, to, to read a, a score. But uh, as any professional music will tell you, that's a ten a penny, but a lot of yeah, people can do yeah, that. Yeah. But that extra thing, yeah, that yeah. extra thing to yeah. create and to speak to strangers in thousands of miles away in our in our time or hundreds of years away. Yeah, yeah. So. We talked about his genius. What about his deafness? I mean, do you think he could have written the late quartets unless he had been deaf? That music which is so inside I his head. I think you're exactly right there. I think it is the interiority, if that's the right <laughs> word, of the music. It's. I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with those uh, uh, quartets and I often put them on and think I'm just going to work or do something and then I find myself I, I have to, to listen, listen. To, yeah. really do yeah. because they tell a story they go somewhere and they mm. come back and they they weave in and out of your mind it, it, for, you know some people are very put off by them because they're not a merry uh, Mozartian or even Schubertian kind of thing they, they have a, a, a um, you know they have a darkness and uh, they have a pain in them but they also have that I think, you know, one of the most famous pieces of writing on uh, music is in Howard's End by um, Ian Forster, where uh, Helen, the uh, uh, heroine I suppose she is, uh, um, goes with her sister to hear, I think it's a Wigmore Hall, to hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which uh, Forster famously describes as the sublimest sound ever to penetrate the ear of man, which is wow. quite a good phrase, isn't it? <laughs> and, and he takes us through a, a way of listening to it, which anybody who hasn't read it, I think, is, is, is wonderful. Mm. talks about goblins stalking the universe from end to end at the uh, beginning of the third movement and so on and the uh, the fantastic moment at which it turns into the major this there's a drum passage and then the trumpets and there's it's suddenly in in c major uh, after having been famously obviously in c minor which was the the darker and more mysterious key and the slightly threatening sound and, um and then then the goblins come back mm. and then it ends in sun and he said it's so glorious. The, the sunshine and the glory of the, is, is so magnificent in the major that you begin to wonder whether the goblins were there, and that's why he brings them back, and that's why you can trust Beethoven. Ah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and, yes. And I think that's the point. You can trust him. He is, of all the artists, let alone composers, perhaps with the exception of Shakespeare, the, the one who is most on our side. Wow. Why do he you is, say that? Explain. I don't know. It's a feeling. He is the people's composer. That sounds silly, I know. Um, <laughs> but but, but there's, 
you know, one of his earliest works, 1801, I think it was, was The Children of Prometheus, for example, mm. which is exactly about the thing that obsessed um, people of the Enlightenment. This, As religion was slowly being unshackled from society and from the human soul, and we were allowed to think for ourselves for the first time, and science and philosophy and art were, were, were encouraging us to believe in the self rather than the hierarchy to which we were told we belonged and the place we were supposed to have in society and in the great order of things. Um, it, it made people look back at the Prometheus myth, this idea of, 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 of this titan who was the champion of mankind, who, who made us and loved us, and then um, Zeus punished him because he gave us fire. In other words, the creative spirit. Mm. He gave us divine fire, and this was more than the gods could take. And that was like, to them, suddenly a, a, an analogy for what had happened to mankind, that we had discovered our own inner spark. We'd stolen the spark from God, which was supposedly the only thing we should worship, and found that we were gods. Humanism had come of age, and, and so the Prometheus myth, and around the same time, or not long after, of course, uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus, and, uh, and Shelley, her husband, wrote, wrote, wrote uh, Prometheus Unbound. So there was this obsession with this idea of being mankind suddenly was, you know, the human was in charge of their own soul, mm. their own being, their own destiny. They made their own mistakes. They were not beholden to dukes and then kings and then bishops and then popes. It, 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 they, they, those people had lost their voice and lost mm. their power. And that's why he admired Napoleon in the, uh, after the revolution in France so much and, and why he was so devastated when yeah. Napoleon proved himself to be going backwards and crowning himself an emperor. Um, and so this was important to him and to his whole generation of artists. And Wordsworth was around the same time, of course, mm. 1798, he published uh, um, lyrical ballads and, uh, and, and wrote about the French Revolution. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Mm. So you can imagine what that generation, yes. they really were for the first time. Yes, there were still dukes and there were still, you know, cardinal bishops and so on who were in charge of things, but for the first time, poets and writers, Shelley called poets the unacknowledged legislators of the world. This was a new revolutionary spirit that yeah. was not a political revolution, it was a revolution of the heart. And Beethoven's music, above all, led this revolution. That was Stephen Fry, and there we end this edition of The Art of Change on Nothing Concrete with me, Chris Gunnis. Next time, the second part in our four-part series in which Stephen talks about his own struggle with manic depression and his failed attempts to take his own life. You can subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help get the word out. Until next time, from me, Chris Gunnis, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.